Coming up on this episode of East Screen, West Screen, Taiwan has no love lost for Lost in Thailand, Cloud Atlas gets cut in China, there's yet more Ip Man on the way, and we look at the films The Last Stand and Django Unchained. This is East Screen, West Screen with Paul and Kevin. Where if films were food, they'd be full of it. Welcome back to another episode of East Screen, West Screen. This is the show where we talk about film from Hong Kong to Hollywood and lots of stuff in between. It is Wednesday, January 23rd, 2013. As usual, I'm your host, Paul Vox. And joining me, as always, from his super secret location right here in the Fragrant Harbor is Mr. Kevin Ma. Hey there, Paul. Hey there, everybody. Your voice is somewhat deeper this week, Mr. Ma. What's up with that? Yeah, just uh, a little under the weather. My my throat. I haven't seen a doctor yet, or I won't. But uh, yeah, it, it seems like I'm coming down with a bit of a, a throat infection. So yes, the the bug has gotten to me. Oh, that's no good. Did well, it... it's not. It hasn't blown up to like a, a flu or cold or anything yet. Yeah. Not wood. Yeah, that's going. That's going around though. Be sure that uh, you try and try and get that looked at as soon as possible because you don't want to be laid up like I was back in uh, November. That was terrible. Um, but yeah, I hope you're feeling better. And, uh, you know, I kind of thought you were doing the deeper voice because, uh, we've got some very manly movies to talk about this week, you know what I'm saying? Oh, you know uh, it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, yeah, we've got, unfortunately we've only got East or West screen movies this week because the East screen's been a bit of a, we're in a bit of a dry spell right now as we uh, make our way ever closer to the fantastical Chinese new year, which is, uh, you know, a big release time for those of you who um, haven't been to Asia before, it's basically like the holiday, the Christmas release period um, for us here in Asia. So they tend to hold a lot of bigger movies, sometimes a lot of Western movies too, because we'll get some bigger Western releases during this period as well. Um, but uh, yeah, right now we're in a bit of a dry spell, and uh, we're going to be talking about a couple West Green movies this week. What are those films going to be, sir? Well, the first West Screen movie we will talk about is kind of an East Screen film because it's directed by a Korean filmmaker. It's The Last Stand, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger, or as I call him, The Governator. Um, and the other film uh, that's fully West Screen is uh, Quentin Tarantino's Django Unchained. The D is silent, apparently. Oh, yes. All right. All of that and the silent D coming up after a little bit of news. <laughs> All right, so we've got a couple news stories to talk about this week. Um, not a whole lot on the news and information plate uh, that uh, caught my eye, but a couple stories did. Up first, from our favorite news site, Film Biz Asia, um, this story kind of caught my eye because of the subject matter, and um, I sort of have an affinity for it, and that is a Chinese opera. This article entitled... Chinese operas headed for new stage. This is from Patrick Frader, uh, dated Tuesday, January 22nd. So it's from yesterday. It says, uh, 10 peaking operas will make the transition from stage to film 
in the next three years. And this is according to China's State Administration of Radio Film Television, or as we know them, SARFT, um, or if you rearrange the words, FARTS. Um, this is the uh, uh, group that uh, kind of oversees uh, some of the films that gets made, and they're, they're, they have some controversy going around from them from time to time. But uh, the news that they're going to be making this transition of um, these 10 operas kind of has me a little bit excited, but I'm not really clear on uh, some of the details because um, it doesn't there, there aren't a lot of details about these films it says the first two are going to be um, Auspicious Dragon and uh, Phoenix by the China National Peking Opera Company um, and it goes into uh, some of the stars and uh, who, you know who's likely to be featured in this now my question for you Kevin maybe you can dig up a a little bit more information or present some insight on this. Is this going to be sort of like what John Wu did with Princess Changpeng, where it's simply the actual opera and but kind of filmed? Or is it simply going to be the stage performance? I mean, I know one of the things they do now is they do at some of the local theaters here, they do live streaming of the Met, I think, right? Uh, yeah, um, I think I think uh, it's not live streaming. It's just the recorded performance. Um, it's kind of a trend around the world now that um, to bring people back into the cinemas, they do things like uh, they show concert films, right, right, or uh, including these these metropolitan operas. And I think this is just one of those things. I think they they would just be recording um, these stage performances and playing them in cinemas, where you know um, you'll bring people back into cinemas because you can't download these. And uh, the the big nice speakers and the big screen uh, digital projection uh, will will serve these plays fairly or these opera performances fairly well. Yeah, I I think that my my main question was um, uh, in one of the sentences it says uh, the state owned enterprises China Film Group and Shanghai Film Group will produce the slate of adaptations. So that word kind of throws me. When you say adaptation, it makes me sound like that they're going to be, you know, adapting these things and making them into film rather than simply recording a performance on stage. Um, but conversely, you've got sort of the middle of the road style version, which is um, what John Woo did. Um, and, you know, then you've got, um, you know, I guess films like Farewell My Concubine, which is mentioned in the article, or other films which borrow elements from some of these stories, but are much more um, fictitious and, and you know take a lot of leeway with poetic license and whatnot. Yeah, I don't. I think the word adapt. I think China is getting these metropolitan operas, so maybe they're not so familiar with with these um, uh, theatrical presentations. Mm. Um, but uh, yeah, I, it certainly sounds like that. You know, this would just simply be the Chinese version of what the uh, the Metropolitan Opera hmm. is doing, and um, certainly sound interesting. Especially, Paul, if you're 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 a fan of of the opera. I mean, yeah, it'll I am. Be interesting to see these uh, how these play in a nice big cinema. And 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 I'm very hopeful that they'll get um, you know English translation, um, which you know might not. I don't know if if they're not intending this for a larger international audience, they might not go to the trouble to do that. Um, you know, this is a problem with some of the, some of the earlier films. Um, and I think even, um, even some, many of the very early opera films is that there's no English translation available. And I know it's probably, you know, just me being lazy. I need to get out there and challenge myself, um, for my Chinese. But part of the problem is that 
the way that they do these songs, the way they sing the lyrics, even if you understand whether it's Cantonese opera, if you understand Cantonese or, or Chinese opera, and you understand Mandarin or Putonghua, it's still very difficult to understand right. because, you know, they're, they're very sort of sing-songy and the words are sung, they're not flowing together like a normal sentence. Um, right. So I know that even for Chinese people, it can be very difficult to really understand what's being said. Yeah, definitely. And uh, actually, if there's... An, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, they put subtitles on and try to send it to uh, cinemas across the world as uh, another one of China's uh, soft power, um, little soft power move. Uh, I would not be surprised. But of course, I would also not be surprised if mm. um, in the end they didn't bother putting any subtitles on these. Because, yes, like you said, these are very difficult to understand and perhaps that they are they would there will be too much effort to try and put these three hour opera performances in english subtitles yeah and as jack burton lets us know you know china's here right china is here mr burton what does that mean huh china is here i don't even know what the hell that means so there you have it uh look for it soon uh, hopefully in cinemas coming near you uh, our next bit of news, Taiwan has no love lost uh, for Lost in Thailand. Uh, this is also coming from Film Biz Asia. Um, we talked about the film Lost in Thailand a couple weeks ago. Kevin uh, went up to the mainland to catch a screening, and we're actually getting it here in Hong Kong uh, in a few short weeks, and I'm excited next to get week. out. And, next week, is it? Okay, great. Yes. I'm excited to get out and finally see it. Um, this article coming from Stephen Kremen, uh, dated the 19th, uh, January 19th, um, says that uh, even though that this is the highest grossing Chinese language film of all time in the mainland, it has effectively been banned from theatrical distribution in Taiwan. Um, you know, I mean, I know we've got the, the Dayu Senkaku Island issue going on and tensions, you know, in, in the, the, the Pacific Seas are, are high right now with all the countries involved, not just between Taiwan and, and China. Um, but I mean, what do you think about this, Kevin? Wait, I don't think actually, this, this has nothing to do with the Daoyu Islands, <laughs> nothing to do with it. You know, it's um, it's true that Taiwan has a very, very strict quota for mainland cinemas, um, for mainland films. They've always had, they've always, always been this way. Um, um, and every year, like the report, like Stephen, Stephen wrote in the report, and uh, he's told me these stories, uh, actually, that every year. Um, distributors of, of mainland Chinese films really literally have to line up on New Year's uh, New Year's Day or the morning of New Year's Day in the cold to try and get the first ten slots uh, to get the to get distribution in China. Um, this year's a little, I mean in Taiwan, this year's a little different because this year they went with a lottery system, and uh, I'm not sure how this lottery is decided. I'm not sure if it's random and whatever, but yes, Lost in Thailand is just one of the titles that didn't get picked. Um, but there are many, many films. In the end, only 10 mainland films out of the 400 films that are being produced this year are getting in. And Lost in Thailand is just the title that, you know, didn't get picked. And let's face it, Lost in Thailand is such a mainland film that it, I don't think it would even do well in, in, in Taiwan. It wouldn't have done well in Taiwan. It wouldn't have done as well as, say, Peter Chan's uh, American Dreams in China or even um, a Caught in the Web, which actually stars a Taiwanese actor. Um, or even Last Supper, which has Chan Chan, again, another Taiwanese actor. Um, so, in the, I really don't know how they managed to pick these films. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's something that's to be expected. Of course, the, 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 there's, a, there's a kind of a, a unfair element at play here because 
uh, Taiwan just signed a um, a SIPA deal or a SIPA like deal with um, mainland China or with SARFT. Um, that would uh, give them the same deal as Hong Kong Cinema, which means that Taiwan Taiwanese films can go into China, bypassing the import quota. Um, so just like Hong Kong Cinema. So it's kind of unfair that yes, now a limited number of Taiwan films can get into China. Of course, subject to you know censorship and all that, and uh, and co-productions. Meanwhile, Taiwan is still um, very sensitive about about mainland Chinese or particularly in particular um, stuff produced by a by a nation that's still run by the Communist Party um, to get into Taiwan. So do you think this is a soft power issue that they're trying to limit the exposure, or is it they're simply trying to put in? protectionary measures for their own theatrical releases well it was always a political move it was always from i mean from the beginning of the quota which is you know i'm guessing goes back decades it's always been a political move they would not let mainland chinese films in because the communist party in taiwan was just quote-unquote you know or founded quote-unquote founded by the 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 the, uh kmt Hmm. so why not the reverse i mean I remember, um, this is kind of unrelated, but I remember some years back before the Olympics, the Beijing Olympics, um, I was applying for a China visa, and things had gotten much more strict when I was at the um, China Travel Services, and I was talking you know, with the lady there. I was like, you know, when I was here in 2001, you know, they, they gave me multi-entry, and it was really cheap, and she said, yeah, she says, basically, you know, China mirrors whatever the U.S. policy is. Um, so if the U.S. policy gets a little bit more strict with their visa requirements with China, then China will follow suit. Um, so why, I mean, it makes me wonder the same thing here. Why not, um, you know, if, if Taiwan is so strict, why is China so open? They're certainly not in need of content to fill screens, right? Because to China, Taiwan is a part of the nation. To the official policy is that Taiwan is officially named the region, a Taiwan region, not the nation of, or the Republic of China, or they're not, it's not a nation. So to them, it's just like importing Hong Kong films. Uh, same idea is that, right. yeah, yeah, sure, Taiwan films can get in because they're Chinese films anyway, and as long as they meet our censorship uh, measures and and they follow the co-production rules, yeah, sure, or or yeah, they can get in as, they, as many mm. as they get in as they want because we're the same nation anyway. Interesting. Um, I don't know. You think that then, in, in that case, Taiwan would be making all kinds of like crazy films that wouldn't pass the censorship standards of the mainland, you know? Yeah. Well, but in the <clears> end, <throat> I mean, let's face it. Just like Hong Kong, Taiwan, Taiwan filmmakers need the money from China. That's why Your Dapo Mai got in. That's why City Body got in because mm-hmm. they needed China money. Yeah, and unfortunately, China doesn't get any of the tax revenue from that, right? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it's a strange game that these guys play. All right. Well, uh, that's neither here nor there. If you get a chance to see Lost in Thailand uh, based on Kevin's review, head over. And and you can see that review. That review is up right over at the uh, Love HK Film site. Indeed. LoveHKFilm.com right there is the uh, feature review. Thank you. Check it out or listen to our previous episode uh, when he talked about Lost in Thailand. A little bit more film news in China, mainland proper. Uh, This coming from the... Hollywood Reporter, if I can uh, get the site to come up. And my my internet die? What happened? Oh, there it is. Um, Yeah, this coming from um, Clarence Zoe um, uh, from an article dated uh, 
January 22nd, so a couple days ago, Clarence Soy, a former uh, colleague of mine at uh, my uh, my job and former writer for South China Morning Post. I didn't know he was writing for The Hollywood Reporter. Um, but uh, this article is titled Chinese Censors Snip 40 Minutes Off of Cloud Atlas. Um, so Cloud Atlas has been, uh, you know, making some significant waves and it's getting ready for a release over here. I'm excited to see it for sure. Um, and But this news has kind of been circulating around. I think you tweeted about this, didn't you, Kevin? Yes, actually, I tweeted about how inaccurate this report is. <laughs> okay, so can you please clarify um, with a bit more accuracy what's exactly happening with uh, Cloud Atlas? Okay, so Cloud Atlas had its first screening in Beijing because they started a new promotion of the film. It's opening next week in China. And according to some reporters, uh, the film ran um, only at about 135 minutes, uh, while the original film... Uh, or the the yeah the original cut ran 172 minutes, so that is look, they're looking at a 37 minute cut, uh, according to these reporters who probably didn't expect to see a shorter cut, which is why they didn't know. They, I don't I don't really trust how 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 accurate they are about the minutes cut. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, the the CEO of the distribution company uh, confirmed that yes there were cuts made for censorship. Um, while Tom Tickworth, the co-director of the film, also um, confirmed that, yeah, I hear there were cuts, but he doesn't know anything about them because the, apparently China side did all that. And it's natural because China is one of the co- because the film has many co-producers. It was a, it's an independent film, even though it costs like $100 million to make. It's, a, it's an independent film um, financed by many sides, including Hong Kong's Media Asia um, and China, Chinese investors as well. So yeah, so Tom Tickwar pretty much said, yeah, well, I mean, they're the investors. They, they have to play this film in China, so they can do whatever cuts they want. Um, so essentially, Clarence Trade, the person who wrote this, um, and he's an excellent reporter, and he does a lot of research on Weibo, just as I do, um, formerly of SCMP. Um, he essentially ran what he saw on social media uh, and some of the newspapers, and I don't. he actually hasn't seen this China cut before. So even he can't confirm. If we ask him, I bet you, we, he can't even confirm how long this new China cut is, um, which is a little... which is not so good because, um, because you know, Weibo is a good, good source of news, but um, essentially what the Hollywood Reporter did or Clarence did was that they wanted a scoop um, and want to be a first report that um, that China is cutting into the movie after the Skyfall news last week. Um, and they're trying to play this narrative. Um, and, uh, you know, the, there's news value in this, I suppose. But, I mean, what's new? I mean, yeah, China cuts a movie for because, you know, many things can't get into Chinese cinemas. Hmm. Um, so I wish that before they ran this story, someone could actually co- from The Hollywood Reporter can actually confirm how, how long this new cut is before going live with it because mm. now a lot of the international press including press from Japan um, and, and America of course they've all picked up on this story and it's based on kind of shaky information unfortunately yeah I mean is there any possibility that you would be able to swing up to Shenzhen to see I'm thinking about it I mean I, the movie the film opens this week in Hong Kong so I'm definitely watching it and if I can afford um, if I can find some time perhaps next weekend when it opens uh, perhaps I'll spend another two and a half hours in China trying to because I did that for Looper yeah. actually um, so there's a chance I might if I enjoy the film I'll, I'll go up and, and try and see it again but uh, I mean this is a much longer film and even I'm not so sure if the film is worth rewatching. so yeah we'll see yeah 
Um, so hopefully we'll be able to get back with a little bit more of a more official verdict on what exactly has been cut and how much of it has been cut. I think the main issue, though, is when you talk about basically taking out 30 minutes, roughly, of a film, that's a significant you know, amount of footage, even if it's a three-hour film, right? Yeah, indeed. So I would like to know what they managed to take out. I mean, it was little bits here and there. I mean, I guess um, there might be some sh- uh, some 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 shaky editing, but I w- I would like to know what if they took out entire subplot or if they I don't know what they what they took out. Yeah. Well, we will let you all know once we know more. All right. Uh, last bit of news for this week. Uh, Kevin has some news about the Grandmaster for us, and also about Ip Man, the musical. <coughs> yes. <coughs> Excuse me. Okay, thought that you could edit, give you a little more space to edit it out. Um, anyway, yes, uh, so Grandmaster uh, has been uh, quite a big hit, uh, I guess for a Wong Kar movie at least. The film has already made 15 million Hong Kong dollars here, which uh, has actually quite beat, way, way beaten um, director Wong's uh, highest grossing film by a pretty much margin, and that pretty much mar- a large margin, and that film is, uh, is Tears Go By, which. Um, it's still his most commercial film to date because let's face it, the, the Grandmaster is not more commercial than as tears go by. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's also done very well in China, making 289 million yuan, even though it was almost beaten at the box office by a, by a um, comedy called Bring Happiness Home, one of those sleeper um, uh, comedy that's you know based on uh, a TV variety show. So it was, it was getting close there, but it's still a hit. Uh, two hundred eighty-nine million is not is not a is not a small number at all. I mean, that already beats pretty much most of the Hong Kong China co-productions last year in China. Um, they already beat the Silent War, beat the Four. Um, it's it's a very impressive number, especially for a Wong Kar Wai film. So it's done very well. Um, which means that It Man Fever is apparently still on, uh, around the region. And um, so today uh, on Apple Daily, uh, Raymond Wong confirms that. It Man Free is already in the works. Um, something that we already know, actually. They've been talking about this uh, since last November. But yes, it will be in 3D, directed by Wilson Yip. Donnie will be back. And um, Raymond Wan's even said that, yes, Bruce Lee, the character, will be in this um, third installment, which means um, which means they managed to, to buy the rights to, to, to his name, however they did it. Um, and then, uh, of course, we're also expecting a Herman Yao's take on the the latter the latter stage of Ip Man's life, um, in Ip Man Final Fight, uh, starring Anthony Wong, who actually also did his own Wing Chun training training for the film. Um, in an interview uh, with Apple Daily, he said that his he he already states that his will be more accurate because let's face it, when Ip Man moved to Hong Kong, he was old and looks more like Anthony Wong than Tony Leung, <laughs> which is or, or Donnie, <laughs> which is true. Yeah. Um, but a, a more surprising revelation uh, at the end of that report is that a Ip Man musical is in the works. Uh, Raymond Wong is, again, is, uh, of course, he can't wait to milk as much money as he can uh, from the Ip Man name. And he is involved with this musical that apparently will play in Singapore uh, in English, I think. But yeah, Bay Logan is also involved with that. And um, what else? Yeah, he actually, when, when asked, Raymond Wong says that, oh, look at how many people talk about a Grandmaster. So clearly, the Ip Man name is still very viable, financially so viable. They're going to uh, produce I, this from sure Hong if, Kong uh, and they're going to put it on in Singapore? 
I think Singapore. I'm not sure. I, I gotta re- read that report, but there's no um, you know, I have to reread that report. But apparently, Singapore. That's what it seems like. But yeah, either way, Singapore, Hong Kong, wherever there is a It Man live musical in the works, and it is once again the work of Raymond Wong, who can't wait to uh, who never learns the word stop. If you mm. learn, learn from the uh, if you can learn from the Oswald Ensville franchise, um, but he has said that it's very strange that um, he says that It Man is still very very uh, profitable because of the Grandmaster because the Grandmaster is so clearly not the It Man movie. You know, it, it, it to me, you know, when you come out of, of, of the Grandmaster, you wouldn't just be talking about Inman. You would be talking about all the other characters in the film, which exactly proves that, hey, the Inman name may not be as profitable or as um, viable or as whatever um, as as it seems. Hmm. Uh, I don't know. I don't I, know. I, I, but yeah, I, the musical, I was just... I just did some research. Um, Kenji Kowai, who did the music on Inman 1, will be doing the music... Um, press conference next month, in, next month in Shanghai. Um, the English version of the musical will play in Singapore next next year, and there will be a Chinese version in 2015. Hmm. I may have to get a flight to Singapore. <laughs> I'm tired of it, man. I mean, seriously, that's why I like the Grandmaster so much, because it's not the Ip Man story. Yeah, it, but it, come on, an Ip Man musical? You know you want to see that. Only if it's Donnie, but Donnie's not doing musical. He doesn't have time. I don't know. You know, give him, make make him an offer. Make him an offer you he can't refuse. And for crying out loud, I saw Beach Spike. I'm I'm stopped, and I saw Shadow Guard. I'm not touching anything that Balogun touches anymore. That's a good point, uh, but I won't go further down that road for now. I think <laughs> uh, let's move on and talk about some films. We moved on. All right, we've got two films to talk about this week, and they're both West Screen films because we are, as I said, a little bit on a bit of an East Screen drought. That drought should end for next week. We've got a couple films lined up for next week. Uh, But the first film up, coming back out of his political career, his somewhat scandalous uh, political uh, end, if you will, uh, Arnold returns back to the big screen. Uh, in full form. I mean, I know he's made some cameos here and there in films like uh, The Expendables and whatnot, but now he's front and center and kicking butt and taking names in The Last Stand. So, uh, Kevin, why don't you tell us about The Last Stand? Oh, my God. Okay. Um, Yes, The Last Stand is the debut film, or the Hollywood debut, English-language debut of director Kim Ji-woon who has um, done a wide variety of films in his native uh, country, Korea, uh, including A Tale of Two Sisters. Um, trying to remember how many, which films he's done. A Bittersweet Life, uh, The Good, The Bad, The Weird, um, and, of course, I Saw the Devil. Uh, Paul, have you seen any of these films? I've seen uh, Good, The Bad, and The Weird. I've got A Tale of Two Sisters. I've never actually sat down and watched it. Okay, so you can tell that Kim Ji-Win is a very... Versatile director. Yep. So yes, this is his uh, Hollywood debut, and uh, it stars uh, Arnold, or my former my former governor. I did not vote for him, by the way, uh, as a sheriff in a small town. Uh, Ray Owens. Is, I don't know why his name Owens. He's clearly a European. But anyway, yes, he's a sheriff in a small town, uh, a border town called. Um, um, trying to find the town's name. 
So anyway, Bordertown, yeah, Summerton Junction, Arizona. Um, and his backstory is that he was a narcotics um, detective in, in L.A. And then um, he, he, he sort of retired to the sweet life or the, the small town life. Um, one day uh, during over the weekend when the entire town is away on uh, apparently the high school football championship or something. So he the town is practically empty and, and he is uh, him and his three deputies or his, his three cops under him are pretty much running the town. Um, at the same time, a um, dangerous drug cartel named Cortez uh, is being transported in Las Vegas, but uh, makes a very daring escape from the FBI and then uh, speeds off in a um, modified car called the ZR-1 that apparently moves faster than a helicopter and can evade the police uh, very quickly. So he is headed towards the border. Um, so the FBI did, uh, FBI agent um, in charge of the operation... Uh, uh, John Bannister, played by um, Forrest Whitaker, um, is, is of course on the tail, but uh, is failing to catch him. And then realizing, they realize that he may be headed towards the Mexican border. But no one knows that um, the cartel's uh, team of minions is actually at Summerton Junction, uh, building a bridge uh, for the for the drug cartel to get back to Mexico. Uh, but of course, the conspiracy is discovered by the sheriff and um, him and his deputies uh, will have to are the only thing standing between him, uh, the drug cartel and his uh, native Mexico. I just spoke in a cliche. Sorry. Uh, so that, that is pretty much the last stand. Um, like I was saying, Kim Ji has always been a very much a style over substance director. He likes to emulate a lot of genres. Uh, he's done horror. He's done, um, some western action he's done uh, whole, uh serial killer he's done film noir revenge fantasy um i think his first film was a quiet family which is a musical murder serial murder musical kind of thing uh so yes very much a, a genre director and which is fine which is why i think it's okay that he's trying out a b-movie western um i'm cool with that it's a very low rent b-movie western but um it's almost like he, if if you were picking a Korean director who can pull it off, he would have done it because you know I, I think he knows each 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 genre that he's working in and he he works well within that uh, specific genre. Uh, so it's fine; it's not a big deal. So it, it it you should be very careful as to not expect something. It's not like you're expecting a Pang Chang Wook film, you know, with, with Stoker. You know, Pang Chang Wook is a very a director of a very distinct style and a very distinct um, uh, vision, and clearly he's going to make something that's artistically intriguing with Stoker because he's always been. But Kim Ji Woon has always been this kind of cool genre director that people might have given given him too much credit because he's Asian or he's from Korea, so therefore you know is more exotic and, and therefore is more artistic or something. But that's not that's not the way that's not what he is. Um, so which is why I, I was okay with him making this film. Um, Arnie or Arnold uh, is is okay. It's not a great comeback role. I think his English has actually gotten worse after he became governor or something. Um, his line reading is 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 at time kind of stilted. Um, it's not a perfect comeback role, but I like him in this. He's he's still very commanding and and he has a lot of cool little moments. You know, like I've seen too much blood and oh uh, yeah yeah it's it's kind of cool to see him here. Um, he doesn't really do any fighting. Um, you don't really see him as a buff sheriff. He's still big, but he's not really that buff anymore. Um, so he, he does more like things like firing guns than, than actual fighting, you know, hand to hand 
combat or anything like that. Um, the, 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 the final battle, which is the actual the last stand in the title, it, it's what we're expecting to see. You know, Arno, Arno taking on the drug cartel and all his minions. That's what we're expecting to see. It kind of takes a while to get, get there. Um, it's essentially the third act of the film. Um, it takes a little while to get there, but the action in between is okay. There's the escape sequence, which was a lot of interesting camera work or some interesting camera work. And if you like that Kim Chi Woon actually didn't really get to stretch his, his, his chops in those sections because he's a very, he's a director who, who's almost in love with intricate camera work. And, and he, I think he was a little restrained here because of the budget and other things. Um, but the action is fine. But of course, when the action final sequence does come, it, it's very satisfying to watch. Um, the comedy is fairly good, um, especially for a director who doesn't speak English. Uh, Johnny Knoxville of uh, Jackass fame plays like a sidekick, a DDD Towns um, weapons freak. Uh, he has a couple good comedic moments. Uh, Luis Guzman, um, who plays a hilar- hilarious deputy, also good here. Um, you know, it, it was a surprisingly fun film, um, especially for a director, like I said, for a director who doesn't speak English, the comedy works. Um, Kim Ji-Woon will never be fully in charge of a film like this, especially on the first film. Because let's face it, he, he couldn't have been that much in charge in Korea when he was making something as big budget as The Good, The Bad, The Weird anyway. I mean, that film was one of the most expensive films um, in Korean cinema history. So he, he knows, he's worked within these constraints before. So it's not like he is going to be struggling with, with you know Hollywood producers or things like that. Um, but either way, when anything goes wrong, you can't really fully blame him for making a bad film because I realize that there's a lot of producers and studios and a lot of people he has to deal with. Um, and he would never be in charge or he would never be fully in charge of the film or he probably can't say that 100% of the film is his. Um, so I'm not going to really blame him for any, you know, real flaw in the film. And there are plenty of flaws in the film. But um, in the end, it's definitely fun. It's trashy entertainment. And I think that's okay. You know, it's a Hollywood B movie, a direct-to-video movie. Um, well, actually, it's a little better directed than a direct-to-video movie. Uh, and that's probably to Kim's credit. But yeah, it's fine, trashy entertainment. And uh, I kind of enjoyed it that way. So yeah, I would say TV it. Paul? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, it's Arnold. So, I mean, you don't really need to say much more than that. Uh, Arnold back doing action on the big screen was enough enough to pull me in, even though this probably has one of the worst movie posters uh, I've ever seen, at least for the Hong Kong release. Um, uh, you know, he's back, although he doesn't say he's back. He doesn't say, I'll be back, but uh, he says some other pretty good one-liners. And I think for his age, I mean, uh, you know, Arnold's grandpa age, um, he's doing pretty good. And, and this is... This is a trend, I think we've talked about it before, and it's certainly something that I know they're playing up in films like The Expendables, um, which I still haven't seen. Probably should get around to watching that eventually. Um, but, you know, we've got, uh, what is it, next month, A Good Day to Die Hard or something. Yeah. Um, you know, Bruce Willis is, is is up there in age. Sylvester Stallone's making movies. You know, so we've got all the 80s and early 90s guys coming back as grandpas and you know, strutting their stuff. And, um, you know, some do it better than others, I would say. Um, I think that I've always liked, you know, Arnold when he was just doing stuff like this. 
and not taking himself too seriously. And I don't think he takes himself too seriously here. He knows what he's good at and, and he knows what his, <coughs> excuse me, what his weak points are. Um, and I think that the director has the sense enough to try and play with the film a little bit. Um, you know, if, as I think about the old Arnold films that I really enjoy, as cheesy as they are, it's because in part they don't take themselves too seriously. Perfect example in my mind is Total Recall, which I ended up watching the original, um, I think like two weeks ago. We got the, got the Blu-ray pretty cheap and watched it, and my wife hadn't seen it. And, you know, it's still fun, cheesy film. Um, compare that with last summer's Total Recall, which takes itself far too seriously and is just, you know, a, a drag fest for, you know, the whole uh, out 90 plus minutes of it. Um, it looks pretty, but it just doesn't have that same that same spark. That, And I think part of that spark is something that Arnold brings to the film. And um, so for me, the film works on that level. And I know that's not going to work for all people. Uh, you know, as a result, you've got to kind of like Arnold um, to really get behind this kind of a thing. Um, now that being said, it does, because of that, it still feels very 80s and 90s-ish, you know, it feels like it belongs back in that era to some extent. Um, but again, for me, that's okay. Um, this film is kind of like, you know, Walking Tall meets Arnold in almost every movie he's ever made. <laughs> um, you know, particularly coming to mind things like Commando, uh, among others, um, but uh, there, there is some, you know, aside from Arnold, there's some really good character casting. Uh, Peter Star Stormare, who I have yet to see a film that he's in that I didn't like. Did you get the link I sent you today on Google Plus? Yeah, 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 the, the Stormare. Yeah, the, 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 there's, a, there's a great thing for, I guess it's the new Call of Duty. I don't play Call of Duty. It's, those aren't my, the, the, that, that style of game isn't, isn't for me. But um, they've got this commercial campaign called The Replacer with Peter Stormari in it. And it's great. I want a Replacer movie. I want to see that. If, if you haven't seen it, go to YouTube, look up Peter Stormari, The Replacer, and, and watch it. It's well worth... It's a great commercial. If you like Peter Stormari, and I, I think he's great. Um, and he's good here, you know, doing his typical thing. Uh, Harry Dean Stanton, who I haven't seen in ages, kind of pops up as the... as this get-off-my-lawn kind of a guy. And the sad thing is, is he wasn't in it enough. I wanted to see him... A whole lot more than I did, but um, uh, it was nice to see him. Kevin talked about Louis Guzman, uh, also another great character actor. A um, couple, you know, some some new people who not too familiar familiar with Johnny Knoxville. Just I know that he's got he's built his reputation off the you know the Jackass line and stuff, and that's always been a big turnoff for me. Um, uh, he you know he was okay in the film, but sort of, he, he kind of brings that baggage of stuff with him. Um, I, I could have done without him and there's a romance in here. Um, and a little bit of a revenge plot and the whole escape plot gets a little bit convoluted, but, um, you know, it's okay. The, the one big problem I have with this film is this car, right? They have this super souped up Corvette that is used as the escape vehicle. And it's like a, it's all, it's more like a military vehicle. And some of the stunts they do with this car are just a bit too over the top for my taste. I mean, I know that they needed this, this, you know, sort of this uh, mystical way to get this guy to this town. 
for the last stand. That that's the whole thing. It's like, all right, you've got the entire, you know, FBI task force out after you. How is he gonna how is he gonna get there? How is he gonna get away from these people? And that's all fine and good, but some of the stuff they do with the cars just, was just a bit too over the top. There's no way that that particular car is going to be doing some of that particular stuff uh, that they ended up doing. Um, and, and also, there's a couple moments that made me just say, what? Are you kidding me? Um, you know, so for example, you've got this, he's got this team of mercenary guys with night vision and all this super high tech, and yet he's got the entire FBI task force and not one of them has night vision goggles. It's like, <laughs> come on, seriously, guys. You're, you, you've got high-tech, you know, pursuit helicopters. This is the most wanted man across the country, and none of all, you know, you don't have anything to, to capture this guy. Um, so there were a couple of, I don't know, technical problems that I thought were there to facilitate the story that didn't make a whole lot of sense, but getting beyond that, getting into, you know, what it builds up to at the end was good there's a lot of good action mostly gunplay um although i will say that the final fight with arnold is sort of this uh, slam bam takedown fight with him just you know basically grunting through it the, the whole way which was great I, I liked the fight a lot it was well done but it happens on this <coughs> excuse me it happens on this bridge and the whole thing because it's supposed to be i guess the u.s mexico border over this canyon all things done green screen and it just the cinematography because of as a result it, it just looks kind of fake and would have been much better if they could have just gotten the guys out you know out of the studio into uh, a real outdoor space and i think it would have looked a lot better because it really just looked it almost looked like a tv set in some ways because it just wasn't i don't know if it was, it was something to do with the lighting and the green screen you could just tell it was it was flat um but beyond that i had a good time there was some one-liners i laughed there's a lot of things you're coming to expect um you know there's there's this whole thing with a with a i guess it was the mayor's car and you know what's coming with that um so i'd say if you're an arnie fan see it uh if you're not yeah you can tv it so um and the word on the street is that arnold is a uh, I guess up for uh, doing Star Wars. What? You haven't heard this? Yeah, no, I find Terminator. No, he's gonna do uh, the voice of Darth Vader. And in fact, they've got some footage right here on YouTube. Our plans are not in the main computer. I want to ask you a bunch of questions. I want to have them answered immediately. You're a damaged goods lady. Fuck you. Holding her is dangerous. Word of this gets out. It could generate sympathy for the rebellion in the Senate. She'll give away our position any chance she gets. She's your baggage. You fall behind and you're on your own. Okay. <laughs> uh, that, is a, that is a segment called Darth Vader voiced by Schwarzenegger. And it's just basically clips from Star Wars. And they've edited in uh, Schwarzenegger's voice over them. It's kind of funny. You can go check it out on the YouTube you just got this episode to the explicit category. Yeah, Imagine. I'm sorry about that. I forgot that was in there. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, well, let us move on to our second East Screen film, or West Screen film, excuse me. Uh, that is the um, the latest Western pulpish action spectacular from Quentin Tarantino. Uh, the film that is known as Django Unchained. <clears throat> excuse me. So Django itself is a is a super long 
film series. I mean, Django as a character, he's kind of like uh, James Bond, but he's not. I mean, there are lots and lots of Django films uh, that are listed out there. And in fact, um, um, I think the first one was, if I've got my dates correct, uh, like back in 1966. And um, that's, con you know, it's it really started the part of part of the spaghetti western um, um, genre, if you will, or, or helped popularize it, especially with, with the name Django itself. Um, the first film, yeah, 1966, um, starred Franco Nero, who actually Tarantino um, gives a brief mention to in, in the credits of his film. And yeah, there are, there are several dozen uh, film titles listed on here. Uh, most recently, uh, the film title being Sukiyaki Western Django uh, from 2007, which actually features a cameo of uh, Tarantino in it, if I remember correctly. Um, now, most of the Django titles in these films, they're they're not related. So, you know, to say they're like James Bond is kind of inaccurate because um, a lot of times they're different characters. Uh, and such is the case here um, with uh, Django, uh, Django Unchained. So, the the basic story is taking place two years before the Civil War, um, and you start off and there is a, a a team of slaves uh, being herded towards an auction in Texas by a couple of brothers named the Speck Brothers, and among the slaves is Django, played by uh, Jamie Fox, and um, he's being sold away. Uh, we learn later that he's been separated from his wife who has the German name Broomhilda, and uh, they were separated because they tried to run away together from the plantation they were on. Um, and in the course of their transport to the auction, um, they run across a German in immigrant and dentist um, named Dr. Schultz, who liberates Django and wants Django to help him uh, track down uh, a couple of bounties uh, that uh, he's working on because Django would recognize who uh, the bounties, the, the identities of the bounties because they're from his old plantation. And uh, this bounty hunter, Dr. Schultz, isn't able to recognize them because he doesn't know what they look like. So he recruits Django to come on board uh, as a partner. And over time, the two, you know, they gain an affinity for working together and... Uh, Dr. Schultz is, uh, he's attracted to Django's story about his wife, Romilda, because it goes back to sort of an old uh, Germanic uh, fairy tale legend of, of Brunhilde and Siegfried. And so he agrees if Django will help him for a little bit in bounty hunting, he agrees that he will in turn help him to rescue his wife. And so that sets up sort of the overall story arc. Um, now, what can you say? First, it's a Tarantino film, and I am not particularly a Tarantino fan. Um, I think that uh, of the Tarantino films uh, that I've seen, and I haven't seen, I haven't seen Inglorious Bastards yet. Um, but I think I liked, um, I like parts of Kill Bill and Kill Bill Two. Um, I didn't really care for Pulp Fiction all that much, but I did like Reservoir Dogs. So Tarantino can be hit or miss for me. Um, and I'm kind of torn on this movie. 
which maybe that's maybe that's part of my issue uh, with Tarantino, Tarantino and what he's doing here. Um, I'm not sure. I, I I still need to think on it. I think because uh, I, I it's I only seen it recently, and I, it's still mulling over in my brain. But I, I will say this: it's got excellent performances. Um, but at the same time, it's got very, very tough content to sit through for me. Um, and the content, I mean, it's trying to be authentic for the time period. Um, and in a similar vein, there's a TV series called Hell on Wheels, which does the same thing. It's a, it's a great show. I like it a lot. It's well acted, but they are throwing around the N word like nobody's business. And they do that here. And I mean, I know that's historical. And I know they're trying to depict that, but it still makes me super uncomfortable. And sitting through nearly three hours of that um, just kind of made my skin crawl at, in, in, in quite a few places. Now, that being said, <coughs> uh, there's a lot in this movie that I really loved. There's a lot of over-the-top violence. I'm talking samurai or Sam Peckinpah-style violence times ten. Right, I mean, they have guns in here that make body parts explode. Basically, uh, I would have loved to have been on the Squib crew that were working on this film because visually, it's just some amazing. I don't know if it's all Squib or some Squib and CGI. If it was CGI, they did a great job because um, it looked like they were using um, Squibs on steroids, basically. Uh, and I really loved the look. That it gave it, it almost made it cartoonish, you know. Even though you've got a lot of violence going on, it, it made it so over the top and, that it was cartoonish, and it became fun again. And I know that there's a big thing going on right now in the states with um, Tarantino in his interviews and people asking him about, you know, do video games and movies contribute to gun violence and all the things in the wake of the the shooting in Colorado last summer and and this and the Sandy Hook. Uh, you know, school incident and all that's sort of still up there. And, and I know he's been kind of going off the hook and, and yelling at reporters and stuff. Um, and for me... I'm the, shutting you down, Paul. I'm <laughs> shutting you down. You do that, Kevin. You do that. Um, <laughs> he, uh, he, I, I don't really want to get into that debate of it, but I will say that the way that the violence is depicted here, because it's over the top and it's, it's almost cartoonish for me, lightens things up considerably and i enjoy that i enjoyed i i enjoy much more enjoy cartoonish violence than you know stuff like you know, i see in um saving private ryan for example um so yeah the, there's there's really three different acts to this film the first act i really loved you know it's sort of um you know django getting unchained and 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 you know his relationship building with dr schultz and i really liked that part of it the second part um, builds into sort of the white trash aspects where you've got things like the clan, you've got Don Johnson as Big Daddy, uh, and he's great in the role, I'll say that, and you've got people like Jonah Hill who are thrown in for a cameo that's kind of funny, um, and then it gets to sort of the meat and potatoes of of the story arc, with, and that's when uh, Leonardo DiCaprio come, gets into the picture. And they're all, it's all great, great performances, but again, the content starts to get under my skin um, because they start getting into this thing about, uh, was it Mandingo wrestling? It's basically pitting slaves against each other, wrestling and, and fighting to the death. And I, ha I that kind of rubbed me the wrong way uh, a little bit. And again, I know that they're trying to 
you know, depict the cruelty and, and the bad things that happened back then. And, and, you know, they're successful in doing that. Um, and then the third act sort of builds back into this expected, you know, I don't know if it's really fair to call it blaxploitation, but, it, you know, this revenge fantasy um, type of piece that's very common in spaghetti westerns. And I think that Tarantino, you know, successfully pulls it off here as well. Uh, I did really enjoy the German fairy tale parallels, and in many ways, this is simply a retelling of the the Brumhilde fairy tale, um, with with the Django character being portrayed as a as you know Siegfried and him having to go through the various trials up the mountain to to rescue her as as they're discussed in the film. Um, so it, it is a good action western, but with a lot of heavy issues of race. Now, I know there's some controversy out there, too, regarding Spike Lee saying, you know, this film is, you know, a travesty and he's not going to see it. And, you know, again, I'm I'm always hesitant to to listen to anything that anybody has to say about something when they have the attitude that they're not even going to see it and they're going to condemn it. Right. Um, but, you know, I, I understand. I understand that this is a film that's controversial it's, you know, particularly because of the content and because it's, you know, a white director. Um, but I will say this, all the American white guys are bastards in this film. So, you know, there is not one redeeming white American who's not a bastard. So, you know, uh, I don't know, historically accurate? <laughs> I, you, you decide, right? Um the the other the other side i mean even they have some australian characters in here who are none too grand um and the the final point i'll make about this is uh, you know dear quentin please don't put yourself in your movies anymore um and if you're going to do it don't do accents because you don't do accents um you know it's i i think it's a bit pompous to to do that and i i know that the you know there's a scene that some people i i got a kick out of and maybe that's the main reason he did it. I won't say what happens, but uh, um, I always find it annoying when a director has to put himself in his movie, you know, um, and uh, especially if they're not an overly great actor, which I've never, I know he's been in some other movies that he hasn't directed, but I've never thought he was a, he, he was all that great of an on-screen presence. Um, but he, particularly here, if he, you know, him choosing to do accents, it's, it's not really his thing. Uh, is the film really Oscar material? That's a question I'm still wrestling with. Um, because it is what it is. It is simply a Quentin Tarantino film that does what most Quentin Tarantino films do. He doesn't play with things like narrative here. He's simply, it's a postmodern film. It's borrowing bits and pieces of Spaghetti Westerns. It's doing the same things that Spaghetti Westerns did, you know, 40 years ago. It's not really adding a lot new unless you you know you count the viagra or the the value or the the not the what am i thinking of uh the steroid sized uh um squibs that they're using right but even sam peckinpah was doing that so is it a is it best picture material i'm not so sure it is but um i will say the performances were great jamie fox he has come a long way since in living color um and uh, I think he was great in the film. And I'd say see it, uh, but be prepared to be irritated and and to be, I won't say shocked, but um, 
you know, if you're, especially if you're a white American, you probably won't feel good watching this film. And if you do, then something wrong with you. <laughs> I'll just say that. Uh, Kevin? Um, well, as someone who grew up listening to rap music, and, you know, being kind of like a, I wouldn't say I was in an urban high school or anything, but, you know, being in a very much a, a, a mixed um, race school, you know, again, surrounded by pop culture, uh, black pop culture when I was growing up. So I hear the N-word a lot, even in films and music, um, things like that. So, yeah, the N-word doesn't really have a, as bad as an effect on me when I hear it because... In fact, I kind of laughed at one of the uses of it when Samuel Jackson used it in the uh, in the third act when they were uh, it kind of a spo- not really spoiler but the 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 joke about Black Hercules. Yeah. Um, Samuel Jackson has a little like, little N word reference in there, and I was the only one who laughed at it because I thought it was just really random. But yes, that's that's kind of where I'm coming from. Um, if you don't, if if you have trouble understanding why Chinese people really like watching World War II dramas where Chinese people kill Japanese people, this may help you understand it. Because I have a feeling that, yes, there are people who, African-Americans, who really enjoy seeing African-Americans killing white people, especially in the days of um, slavery. And this is kind of that, that, that film. It gets you pumped up about it. Um, it's a very serious topic, of course, slavery. Um, there is still a lot of debate about it, reparations, things like that. Um, but it's essentially the escapist revenge fantasy version of it. Just like um, Inglourious Bastards is the revenge, um, escapist revenge version of World War II um, against the Nazis. Um, and in that way, I think from beginning to end is that they make the white, the, 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 the white or Caucasian characters as, um, ex- except for Christoph Waltz's character, um, as despicable as possible so that you enjoy seeing them get their comeuppance. Uh, including the Samuel Jackson character who plays a um, the sort of the head slave for the Leonardo, Leonardo DiCaprio character, and he's kind of like Uncle Tom character who 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 is um, who is a very uh, what's the word I'm looking for a very um, o- obedient slave, and and it's so much so that he's he's, he's essentially the, the the second second villain of the film. Um, so we enjoy seeing these people get their just desserts, um, and he does so by exploiting or making this stretching it, making them as despicable as possible, and it works that way as a very exploitative film. Um, which is why I would have been fine with it if it ran about 140 minutes at tops, tops. But of course, Tarantino was it's a self indulgent director. Uh, as we can tell by now, um, and he drags out the middle hour um, to to no end, and uh, essentially there is no need for that section to be an hour long, and um, and the film really felt way too long. Uh, I am more of a fan of Tarantino than you are, Paul. I think I like Pulp Fiction, and my favorite film of his actually is Jackie Brown, another another film about African American characters, lots of N words, of course, uh, spoken by Samuel Jackson. Um, I didn't I, I don't quite like his uh, recent films. I didn't like Inglorious Bastards. Um, I didn't like um, Death Proof uh, because he's gotten so self indulgent and and he he's gotten so um, he's it's almost it's almost like he's he's just content with showing off his movie knowledge rather than really making a movie. So um, that that really did hurt his previous films and it kind of hurt here in terms of uh, just dragging out that section of the film for. And, and really making it way too long for the story. 
Um, but of course, like you said, the first hour is great. I actually quite like the first hour. It's hilarious. It's bloody. And it's exactly why people see Tarantino movies. Um, I don't go watch Tarantino movie for the artistic, for the art section. I just wanted to make geeky, violent um, movies. You know, they're better filmed than, than your typical exploitation movies. Um, and I think the first hour is why people see Tarantino movies. Um, or at least the first hour is why people should see, or it should be why people see Tarantino movies. Um, his love for movies is still there. Uh, a lot, like you said, a lot of little touches. They, they use the original Django song, Morricone, um, Morricone music uh, everywhere. Um, and uh, but at least, thank God, finally people aren't just sitting around talking about movies, which is what he did in Death Proof, and also what he did in Glorious Bastards. Tons of movie movie references coming out of his character's mouths as if Quentin Tarantino just sort of possessed them and started showing off movie knowledge. And that's, uh, I'm so happy that's not, that didn't happen here. Um, also, like you said, Paul, Quentin Tarantino should never, ever, never, ever, and quoting Taylor Swift, never, ever, 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 ever act in the film. Really? Seriously? Um, but, you know, like I said, he serves the geeks very well um, and makes these violent... Uh, movies with a lot of movie love, so all the movie geeks watch it and like, yeah, haha, I recognize it. Oh yeah, that's a great piece of music from that other movie. Yeah, that's a little good reference from that other movie. And he 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 serves the geeks well. And then he also lets the critics wait, read way too much into his films. Um, there are literally opinions of other opinions of Django Unchained out there, as if you know it's so it so matters so much for everyone to write. A, 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 a graduate thesis about the film. Um, it, it's not that kind of... It, it deals with a serious issue, but the handling of it, it's um, it's just a really it's an escapist fantasy that, you know, I guess as someone who's seen a lot of um, anti-Japan Chinese films, I kind of get it. I totally get it. Um, but of course, the uproar is not entirely unfounded. After all, imagine a Japanese director going to China and then making a World War II drama about Chinese people killing Japanese people. Uh, Chinese people probably think, who are you to make this kind of film? Who are you to make a movie about, you know, evil Japanese people killing Chinese people, but then, you know, this revenge thing. They probably can only see the part where everyone says the N-word and, and whip the slaves and things like that. Um, but does that mean that African-Americans won't complain if Spike Lee or an African-American director had made the film? That automatically makes it okay? I don't quite get it. Um, in the end, um, I wish it was shorter, but I think I had a better time at this than I did at Inglorious Bastards. At least this one is a complete film, unlike Inglorious Bastards, which which was just essentially seven scenes, like eight scenes, stretched out over 150 minutes. This one felt like a complete film and a complete story, uh, and I enjoyed this better. I enjoyed this more. I might end up buying the Blu-ray. I'm not sure yet. Um, but yes, I bought the soundtrack, and I had fun with the film. I laughed um, when I'm supposed to laugh, and uh yeah, I enjoyed it. So I would say see it slash DVD if you don't have the patience to sit in a in a cinema for for 170 minutes. Uh yeah, it's fine. It's not bad. Yeah. But uh, again, the Oscar material question, right? Yeah. You were asking. Um, like I was saying, he he lets a lot of critics read too much into his films, and of course, uh, it becomes this really important statement about slavery and race relations and things like that. I think that that's what, and this whole expectation that or this this extra elevation of what a Tarantino film is. I think that those things sort of help it get into the Oscar nominations, but it will never win an award. Hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, 
you know, again, I, I, it's, it's a very good, entertaining film, but it is, uh, I, you know, I don't know if I want to watch it again. That's the thing. It's, um, it, it it's just got some moments in it, um, uh, especially, to, especially in the latter half. Like I said, the first act is great. Um, you know, there's, there's a little bit of, you know, setting up the story and everything, and there's what you expect, and then it gets a little bit humorous, but then it gets dark in a couple places, and, and, there's one thing in particular that's just really, it it it, it kind of made my skin crawl and it just made me want to, I actually covered my eyes at one point. Not because it's overly, it, it's not an overly graphic film by any sense of the means. You know, this is not like, a, you know, they're, they're not showing, you know, uh, intestines and stuff like that. It's just the, 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 the concept of what they hint at going on was just really very disturbing for me. Um, but of course, they set it up so that when they get their meet their ends, you 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 feel, of course, gratified. Well, yes and no. You know, it's just like it's just like how Chinese films show these super brutal Japanese soldiers killing Chinese people, so that at the end when they but get see, killed, the, the difference you gratified. The the difference is is that like, you know, in the well, I, I don't want to give away too much. You know, it's just, I'm, I'm thinking of like you know. Uh, old Bruce Bruce Lee movies and stuff. You know, there there <clears throat> there's a line in the film where they're talking to Django. I think it's it's uh, Samuel L. Jackson's character, and he's saying, you know, he's saying like, what are you, what are you gonna do? Are you gonna like, you know, take on the whole white world or something, um, something like that? Do you remember that? Where kind that of was? towards the end. Yeah, yeah I, I don't remember Samuel L. Jackson's character or, or something, but you know, it's kind of alluding to the the massive you know, the massive impossibility of this person existing at this time period uh, for very long, right? Um, and I was just thinking, you know, back to like, you know, the old Bruce Lee movies like, um, you know, uh, is it Chinese Connection or Fist of Fury? I don't remember. You know, and, and a lot of Chinese films at that time where they deal with the Japanese occupation, they all kind of end the same way. You know, they have that that sort of freeze frame ending um, in in the vein of, uh, um, you know, the Paul Newman film. And uh, what, what's the Paul Newman Western? Uh, uh, but, Butch. Yeah, Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid. Butch Cassidy. Butch and Sundance. Yeah. Um, and I'm not saying that this, this that film ends this way. Right. I'm, I'm not spoiling that at all. I'm not saying it does or it does not. But what I'm saying is, is that there's this sensibility out there. Um, that that's touched on right that um, you know but, but again this is a film that's much more action based and exploitative and really more fantasy in a lot of ways but then it has these moments of reality that kind of bring it down and and you know make it I mean I've heard some people compare it to like Blazing Saddles right and there are a couple moments where it is kind of like that you know the humor is such that it's like you know, almost getting into that overly comedic territory, but then it it comes back to these very you know these very dark moments that make you go, wait, what am I watching? Um, so yeah, but I mean, see it just for the leads. I mean, Jamie Fox is great, and uh, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, da, 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 da. Christoph Waltz. Christoph, Christoph Waltz, amazing. I loved his character. You yes. know, it's like that's that's like a guy I want to know. You know, I want to I want to sit down and. And, and and talk with him and have a beer with him. He was such a cool character. Um, and, uh, yeah. 
So really, really good leads and uh, some some great cameos. And if you can get over the the, the tough subject matter in some places, it's a good film to see. All right. I think we've rambled on quite enough about that. So let me play this. You're listening to the East Screen, West Screen podcast. Visit Comcast.com for more. Right, uh, a couple comments. Uh, we got a comment over on Google Plus uh, from a listener named Stephen. Says I had to listen to your show today. My first visit. It's great. Well done. I mainly wanted to hear what you thought of Young and Dangerous Reloaded. You mentioned at the beginning of the segment that you understood the original film was based on a comic. Yes, that's right. Uh, I don't know if you're aware, but the comic is still published today. Its English title is Teddy Boy, and I picked up a copy a while back and saw it was up to volume 1,556. Take that, Spider-Man, who only just turned 700, I think. Um, it's been going on for over 20 years, surely one of the longest-running comics of its type. Um, I didn't know it had been going on that long. I mean, that's a that's an amazing run. Now, I know that Spider-Man's, you know, you go back and you count all the Spider-Mans and the reboots and the, you know, the the renumberings and the spinoffs, and it's probably well over 1,556. But uh, Yeah, I didn't realize the Teddy Boy um, comic is still running. I know that there is another long-running uh, triad comic book called Formal Union, which um, actually had, uh, I think it started running about 10 years ago, and it did a um, special triad edition cover when triad came out, William Chan. So, yeah, there's at least these two long-running um, triad comics that's yeah. still in Hong Kong. Is uh, Storm Rider still running? Is that a thing? Um, I'm not sure. Okay, because yeah. there's a lot of these little weekly mag- uh, comics that still that still run, and they come in every week, I think, uh, or every two weeks, and only at about 15, 20 pages at a time. Yeah. And I never really stopped by a newsstand on enough to stare at what, what's out already. So yeah, um, that's I, why I didn't even know Teddy Boy is still running. I stop by on occasion and, and look at them, and I I never buy them. I, I've thought about getting into it, but it's a whole different world. And, uh, um, I, I you know, back in the day when I was in the States, they, um, I think it was Jade Man Comics was doing uh, English translations of Blood Sword and Blood Sword Dynasty and... <clears throat> Uh, oriental heroes and i got those at the time but they the runs all they only did a very limited run they, i guess they weren't selling well and they ended up stopping them um they've just never been able to break over into uh the west in a big way which is a shame i do have one comic book it is a it is a batman in hong kong uh <laughs> crossover that was done with um I can't remember the artist. Uh, an artist from DC and an artist from Hong Kong got together, and they they did sort of this team up. And there's a there's a there's like a Hong a Hong Kong hero. I think his name's Dragon, or, or Night Dragon, or something very generic. And and Batman, right? And they like team up to work on a on a crime. And I've got the Hong Kong version, which is in Chinese. And there's I guess there was a an English version of that, which was uh, released as well, which probably find out in comic shops or on ebay um so yeah there's that uh i you know it's uh the comic industry is still fairly strong but more and more i see people reading them on their pads 
and stuff. And I don't know if uh, the industry's made the shift to digital as they have in the West. You know, it makes me wonder um, if, if the, you know, the digital content is uh, actually legal or not and if that's hurting the industry over here at all. Um, but yeah, that's a probably con that's probably a discussion for the uh, East Comic West Comic podcast, right? <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um, so yeah, guys in the chat room talking a little bit further about Kill Bill. Um, let's see, David says Kill Bill ended my Quentin Tarantino love. Not that I haven't watched everything since. Um, yeah, Kill Bill was kind of the last thing Tarantino did that interest me. But to be honest, I haven't seen. Uh, Death Proof or Inglorious Bastards yet, so I can't really comment on those. Um, any other comments? Any comments uh, over Kenneth, on Facebook? Kenneth said that he loved Inglorious Bastards. Um, Blue Summers agrees with him, uh, and I pointed out that yeah, I, I actually the problem is I read the Inglorious Bastards script uh, before I watched the film, and the script actually a lot more content than the actual film. The film felt like a a highlight reel from the script so i didn't really like the film because it just felt like it was a highlight reel wasn't really a film mm. uh which explains why i didn't like Gore's bastards all right well uh, i think that's going to do it for our show this week if you would like to join in the conversation be part of the show uh get in touch with us you can head over to our website at congcast.com that's k-o-n-g-c-a-s-t.com or you can hit us up over on itunes we'd love to hear you from you there leave us some feedback um, if you want to follow the show on Twitter, twitter.com slash concast to follow our show updates, twitter.com slash foxlore if you're interested in my uh, meager ramblings. I don't tweet as much as I used to, but I get out there on occasion. Uh, but I urge you to follow Mr. Ma over at twitter.com slash thegoldenrock. That's one word, thegoldenrock. And he frequently tweets about movie information, release dates, uh, revenues, all kinds of interesting stuff. So if you're interested in Asian cinema at all, please follow him. You can send us an email that is gmail, uh, eastscreen at gmail, to be precise. Um, send us a question, a comment, leave us a short audio review. Keep it short and sweet, and we'll play it here on the show. And if you'd like to get in touch with us via the Facebook, it is facebook.com slash eastswests. Or if you're on Google+, um, you can look me up, uh, Paul Fox, on Google+. And you can also join our Google+, community. We've got a small but growing community called Chinese Language Cinema. So pop in there. And if you're going to be in Hong Kong and you'd like to come out to one of our Love HK Film-sponsored movie nights, um, come out, you know, drop me a line over, or Kevin, a line over on Facebook, or drop me a line on Google+, and we'll get you into um, the circulation of the closed uh, events as we post them. Catch us on Stitcher. Listen to us on your iPhone, your Android phone, your BlackBerry, and your WebOS phone. Stitcher is smart radio for your phone. You can find it in your app store or at stitcher.com. Stitcher smart radio, it's the smarter way to listen to radio, and we thank them for their support. Um, additional thanks go out to Rob Gobbers of Schnauzer Studios for our theme, Ross Chen of lovehkfilm.com for helping to organize our movie nights. The K-Man... Kevin Ma for sticking with me for 138, soon to be 139 episodes. And of course, you, the listeners, for being here with us each and every week, whether you're with us in the chat room. Thank you, chat room. To all the guys there, David Harris, uh, Blue Summers, Kenneth from the podcast on fire, the Everything on Fire Network, and everybody else who stopped by to chat with us. Um, 
you guys make it fun for us to do this show, and we like you guys uh, being here with us each and every week, whether it's live or in podcast form. Uh, next show, episode 139, we've actually got an Asian film to talk about again, and that is going to be the Korean film Mega Disaster Extreme. The Tower. The Tower. Uh, the Tower. The Tower. Yeah. Um, with, a, with a name like that, do you even have to know anything else about the content? Uh, also, I'm hoping to get out and see Hansel and Gretel, Witch Hunters, right? Um, you know, as I was thinking of this movie, I'm hoping that they play the Prodigy song. But they change the lyrics so it becomes smack my witch up right because that'll be perfect for this movie um all that and much more as we build ever closer to the chinese new year until then this is east screen west screen wishing you all good viewing and we'll see you next week see you next week everybody uh.